just to say before I pray, um, this, uh, the, this passage has really challenged me, and it feels like it's landed very heavily on my heart this week. If that comes across in the sermon, and if it feels like heavy going, and if it feels challenging to you, um, that will be because it's, that's what it's done to me first. Um, the object is not to leave you feeling beaten up by the sermon, um, but I do want to talk honestly about something James raises that will be quite a significant struggle for many of us in sort of British kind of more middle-class evangelicalism. Um, so let me pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, that your word does not leave us unchanged. It's not done that, it's not left me unchanged this week. I pray it would not leave any of us unchanged today, Lord. Um, and I pray that along with those things that challenge us, would come clearly your mercy to us, the mercy that James ends the passage with, the mercy that triumphs over judgment and that you have displayed so powerfully for us in the Lord Jesus. So we pray for your help. We pray that you be working our hearts by your Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you can try and imagine with me an updated version of the scene that James describes in verse 2. So imagine that it's 10.25 a.m., Sunday morning. Lots of people are arriving, the hall's filling up. Welcome, the uh, host team is standing at the door. And who should walk up in sort of looking very, very dapper in his sort of snazzy designer jackets and shirts? But James Dyson, the fourth richest man in Britain. And I chose him as opposed to the first richest because I'd never heard of the first richest, some hedge fund manager. Um, imagine James Dyson turns up, um, looking affable, confident smile, maybe for the very observant, a slight hint of uneasiness, doesn't know what to expect. And up behind him, at a distance, shuffles a very different kind of man, whom you recognize as one of the guys who, I'm not sure if he's homeless or what, but hangs around the um, Cowley St. John graveyard. Sometimes you've seen him asking for money outside co-op or Sainsbury's on the Cowley Road. His clothes don't fit particularly well. He's got holes in his jeans. The soles are sort of coming apart from his shoes. His eyes are down. He seems to feel like an outsider and doesn't know what kind of greeting he's going to receive. How would we respond? How would MRC respond? Now, I I don't think that we would do anything quite as blatant as James described in the passage. Like, I can't imagine Dan sort of marching up and sort of pumping James Dyson's hand and then turning to the, the guy who may be homeless and saying, you go sit by a window in the breakout room. Um, I wonder, though, if some of us might show favoritism in more subtle ways. Maybe on, on recognizing James Dyson, there'd be this sort of wave of excited whispering through the hall. Maybe he'd get sort of 
really enthusiastic greetings before and after the service. There'd be lots of people wanting to talk to him. He'd probably get a few lunch invites. Maybe people would start thinking, what a great opportunity for the gospel. Like, how soon can we get him on Christianity Explored? Would the homeless guy get a more subdued welcome, perhaps? Would he get any lunch invites? I don't know. In the, wherever he sits with, would some of us be feeling, how do I talk to him? What, what do I do here? I reckon we'd still be pretty pleased if that guy wanted to do Christianity Explored. But would we be as excited as if James Dyson wanted to? I'm not sure all of us would be. I wouldn't be. And so James's scenario in verse 2 perhaps isn't so far away from home. Might we still respond in these ways if, if we knew James Dyson and this homeless guy were believers? Probably. I don't know if that's even more concerning. Anyway, favoritism, particularly on the basis of wealth or social class, is never far away in our culture. And so it's very easy for us to bring it with us into the church. But why does James zero in on favoritism? Why is that where he goes at the start of chapter 2? He's just been talking about true religion, the kind of religion that God thinks is worthwhile. And it's religion that, as Andrew was saying, doesn't just listen and nod along in agreement. Religion that actually acts on what it hears. Religion which proves its genuineness through the way it acts. We'll get more on that in the rest of chapter 2 next week. And in verse, chapter 1, verse 27, James highlights the importance of restrained speech, care for the vulnerable, and chucking out the moral pollution of the world as core components of true religion. Now, how does that link with favoritism? I think it links quite easily, because one of the most subtle but damaging ways that the world's morality is corrupted is in the worldwide tendency to show favoritism. Whether that's treating some people better than others because of their gender, or their race, or their religion, or their looks, or their educational background, or their politics, or the football team they support, it's a ubiquitous trend the world over. And the big bias that James zooms in on, probably because it was the most noticeable among his readers, is favoritism on the basis of wealth. That's got to be one of the big ones in the world around us, hasn't it? And it is pollution from the world. Favoritism on the basis of wealth is pollution. It holds people back from caring for the poor and vulnerable, and it's a blot, a blemish on true religion. Nevertheless, James's readers and us to greater or lesser extents, will bring this with us into the church. We, I guess, many of us will struggle with a kind of ingrained bias towards those who share our level of wealth or are you know, from the same social class as us or 
maybe advice towards those who are from a sort of higher class than us as well. And I've seen that in my heart as I've been preparing this sermon. I've found that deeply uncomfortable. So although we could talk about other types of favoritism, I'm going to stick with James's focus. I'm going to talk just about the favoritism he picks up on here, favoritism on the basis of wealth. Because I think it, it's subtle often, but it is a very real problem. And I'm going to link in social class with that, not because it's exactly the same thing, but because there's, there's so much in common. So how else might we see favoritism on the basis of, of wealth or social class in MRC and in evangelical churches like ours? As I already said, you might see that in who we prefer to talk to or who we give invites into our home to on a, on a Sunday. We might see it in who we choose to employ as a church. Or, you know, for me, when I finish as an assistant here, what kind of churches I choose to apply to or don't apply to. Perhaps we'll see it in the part of town that we choose to live in and focus our personal witness on. Or maybe we'll see it in the places we choose to plant churches. Who do we think are the most important or the most strategic people to reach? I'm not saying MRC's necessarily guilty of that. I know we planted into Cowley. I know people in this room labored really faithfully at that. Um, so I'm talking there more about a general trend in British evangelicalism than something that's specifically here. <laughs> um, perhaps we see that favoritism, I don't know, in a church meeting, in taking one person's opinion more seriously than another because of their higher sort of educational attainment. Or maybe even in something small and silly singing, like a, a reluctance to sing worship songs that are simple and repetitive because we think they're shallow and lacking in theological depth. When actually they might be a blessing to someone who hasn't got tertiary education. Maybe you can think of other ways that we show favoritism, or that you have experienced that. You've been on the receiving end. Like it or not, we bring it with us into the church. But we often struggle to spot it because it is so deeply ingrained by our surrounding culture. That's why I've taken time to list examples, not because I want us to feel beaten up, but because I think we need help to spot it. It's deeply ingrained. And if you're anything like me, you probably know that it's really hard to break free of as well. We're drawn to wealth for a number of reasons, I think. It might be perhaps because we want to curry favor with the wealthy to sort of work our way into their circles so we can enjoy their comforts. It may be because we, we're from sort of more affluent backgrounds ourselves and we just, we love the familiar and comforting beauty of well-ordered, wealthy, middle-class lives. Stark reminders of poverty and the, the troubles that go with it make us feel deeply uncomfortable perhaps like the, the sights and sounds that you might encounter in a gritty, sort of graffiti-daubed, run-down council estate. 
Such things are unsettling because they challenge us to move towards suffering. But we fear the mess and sacrifice involved in that. It's uncomfortable. And then finally, maybe, maybe we're drawn towards the rich, the wealthy, the comfortable, as seemed to be the case for James's readers, because we want to win their favor to get them off our backs. So oppression, exploitation, marginalization, these are often driven by the rich. But if you can win them over, isn't that going to make life easier for you? Isn't that going to make life a bit more comfortable? All of that is to say there are lots of reasons why I think many of us, not all of us, but many of us will find it very easy to show favoritism towards the rich. It's deeply ingrained, and so it's easy to become complacent about it. And yet we mustn't be blind to it, and we mustn't be complacent towards it, because James says it is pollution from the world, and he says in verse 4 that it's evil. When we discriminate, we become judges with evil thoughts, he says. So why is favoritism that bad? I mean, it really seems harmless most of the time. Why does James think it is that bad? Well, I think he gives us three reasons. And starting with verse 5, it goes against God's calling. It goes against God's calling. He says, listen, my brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? And the answer is yes, by the way. Yes, he has chosen those who are poor. Those who live in economic poverty and those who are generally looked down upon by the world. Those who are unimpressive or don't fit in. Those who are exploited, marginalized. God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world. Now, he hasn't only chosen the poor. There are a scattering of wealthy and powerful believers throughout the New Testament, and James seems to assume there are some among his readers. God hasn't only chosen the poor. And God hasn't chosen the poor because their poverty somehow merits salvation. It doesn't, their poverty doesn't excuse the kind of God-hating, law-rejecting sin that is in the heart of every human being. So God doesn't automatically save all the poor just because they are poor. In verse 5, it's those who love him he saves. But as a general trend, and I think this is the kind of terms in which James is talking, as a general trend, God tends to choose those who are poor, unimportant and unimpressive in the world's eyes. It's mostly them who receive forgiveness of sins through Jesus and a place in his everlasting kingdom. I think statistically, if you were to look at the makeup of the church all around the world today, that would be overwhelmingly true. It was true in the early church. James doesn't go into why. We have to look at uh, to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29, if we want an explanation. I'm not going to go into all of that now, but briefly, God chooses those who are nothing, in his words, to shame the rich 
the wise and the powerful. To show that they have no claim on God, no reason to boast before him, however much worldly accomplishment they have, that counts for nothing before God. The only reason he gives any good thing to any of us is because of his totally undeserved generosity and kindness. And when he calls the poor and the lowly into his kingdom, he's making that very obvious. So as James says, God shows special favor to the poor. They will, I think, probably make up the majority of his kingdom when we stand in the new creation around Jesus' throne. And if we show favoritism to the rich, we are dishonoring those who God honors. That's the problem James is picking up on. We're not just dishonoring the poor, we're also dishonoring God. We're contradicting his gracious purposes and we are reinforcing the puffed up arrogance of the world. As if to say that their richness and impressiveness means they deserve salvation more. And I guess I I feel conscious that there is a a sort of general trend in British evangelicalism and parachurch organisations, at least the ones I know, Um, to focus on reaching people and places who seem most strategic. But that's defined in very worldly terms. Um, We somehow think that winning over the, the wealthy, the intelligent, the influential, like Oxford and its students, is going to be the most effective way of spreading the gospel and changing the culture around us. Now that's not without truth, and Jesus died for Oxford students too, praise the Lord. But if that's where the majority of church planting efforts and evangelism in England or Britain as a whole are directed, aren't we badly out of step with God's purposes? Unless James is wrong in verse 5, wouldn't it be more strategic to major on reaching the poor, the unimpressive, the sort of provincial, those who people don't really care about, who are away from the center of attention. If God has chosen them to be the mainstay of his kingdom, shouldn't we expect to see the gospel grow most among them? I think that is what happened in Britain during the revivals of the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries. There was a huge groundswell of working class, mostly nonconformist, Baptist, Methodist, congregational Christianity. And they did as much to shape and strengthen the Christian foundations of our society as rich politicians like Lord Shaftesbury or William Wilberforce. Their influence was, I guess, like less noticeable in some ways, because it was it was through the gradual exerting of their influence on politics and on culture just through their sheer numbers. It wasn't as remarkable as someone like Wilberforce standing up in Parliament and opposing slavery, but nevertheless, their influence was real. The salvation of the working classes in Britain was strategic. And I wonder, maybe, is is it possible that part of the reason that church growth and influence is is so diminished in the UK today 
Is that because we make too little effort to reach the poor? Maybe. All that is to say, to get back to the point, (laughs) we dishonor God and we contradict his purposes when we favor the rich. That's really uncomfortable to hear. And it challenges us to leave our comfort zones. And maybe we want to back away because of that. But here's the most important reason that we shouldn't back away. It's because what James is talking about is is embodied by Jesus himself. In verse 1, James says, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. It's as if Jesus' glory has some bearing on this issue of favoritism. And I think it does. What is Jesus' glory? Surely part of it is that he left the riches and comfort of heaven to become poor in order to reach us, to to, to live among us, to teach, to show compassion and kindness, and to die for us. He, he was born into a what we might today call a working-class family in a backwater town that was somewhat despised. He did most of his ministry in the provinces, not around Jerusalem. And he died the death of the lowest kind of criminal. It was the most shameful death he could have died in that culture. He became poor. He ministered for three years without a home of his own. He became poor for our sakes, to make us rich. And if I refuse to follow his example by relinquishing my grasp on the comfort of riches and being with those who are rich and like me. I think I'm somehow claiming to be better than Jesus. And am I really going to do that? I think that is sadly what I do do a lot of the time. But that's not how I can continue. Favoritism on the basis of wealth is evil because it is contrary to God's calling and to Jesus' own example. Secondly, and much more briefly, um, favoritism is evil because it's perverse. The rich are often, as I've already said, the biggest persecutors of the church. And James brings that out in verses 6 to 7. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If anything, I think this just backs up James's previous point, actually. If, if the poor are most likely to be responsive to the gospel, the flip side is that the rich are the most likely to reject it and persecute the church. Maybe James's readers hope to stop this by currying favor with the rich, but it, it wasn't going to get them very far. Those who are wealthy, those who are wise and influential in the world's eyes, have the most to lose by following Jesus. And so many will continue to see the gospel as a threat and not a hope, no matter what we do or say. 
And I think it's James's point applies to us too, because who is it who tends to be most vocally opposed to Christian belief and morality in modern-day Britain, even in East Oxford? Isn't it affluent, well-educated, metropolitan, middle-class people? Sadly, like me. So if any of us shows favoritism to the rich partly because we want to get them off our backs, that's perverse. James holds up the reality to us like a mirror. However much favoritism we show to them in our gatherings or our evangelism or our church planting efforts, many will continue to oppose us and even to blaspheme the name of Jesus. Thirdly, favoritism is evil because it breaks God's law. James said that, sorry, Jesus said that the second most important commandment was love your neighbor as yourself. So alongside undivided love for God, this becomes the overarching law of Jesus' kingdom. He's modeled it for us, he's taught it to us, He's writing that law on our hearts by his spirit, helping us to gradually obey it more and more. And so James calls love for neighbor the royal law. And we break it when we show favoritism. We can't use the excuse that we've loved our rich neighbors if we haven't loved our poor neighbors. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 shows that a neighbor is pretty much anyone who we come into contact with who we have the power to help, even if that's a bitter enemy or a despised social outcast. So we haven't loved our neighbors unless we have loved rich and poor alike. As James says, whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. We can't pick and choose which bits we follow because the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. Basically, one and the same lawgiver gave each of the Ten Commandments. And one and the same lawgiver has interpreted those commandments to us through the person of the Lord Jesus. Think of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke and his parables. That is Jesus interpreting God's law to the church. God's moral law is one, just as God himself is one. And the law reflects God's own perfectly united character. It's not arbitrary. And just as we can't accept one part of God's character, like his love, and reject other parts, like his justice expressed in wrath, without rejecting God himself as a whole, in the same way we can't reject or break one part of the law without breaking the whole. It's all of one piece because it comes from one God who is totally united. So favoritism is a failure to love neighbor as itself, as, as ourselves. It's sin. Hopefully we've got the point by now. <laughs> Favoritism is evil, but what's the solution? How can we grow out of 
favoritism into the kind of sort of unbiased love that Jesus models to us and that James extols? Well, I want to suggest it's not by overreacting in the opposite direction and having no regard for the rich whatsoever. It's not by imposing artificial quotas or, I don't know, an all-working-class shortlist on candidates for eldership or deacons or pastors in the church. And it's not by guilt-tripping ourselves over our failures. That is not going to produce lasting change. Only by changing our hearts are we going to slowly, and I'm fairly sure it will be slow for most of us, slowly overcome favoritism on the basis of riches or wealth. And I think the things that James says in verses 12 to 13 help us with that heart change. Because he he firstly teaches us to rightly fear God as our judge, and only then takes away that fear with the hope of mercy. So firstly in verse 12, he says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. We are accountable to the Old Testament law as interpreted by Jesus. It's no longer there to condemn us if we trust Jesus as our saviour, but it is still in some ways a measure of whether we have produced any evidence of true faith in our lives. Just as if you want to test whether something's straight, you hold it next to a ruler, so if you want to test whether our lives show any evidence of true faith, Hold them up to the law, the Ten Commandments, and Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. If there is no evidence, I'm not talking about those of us who struggle and fail again and again, but there is some evidence. If there is no evidence of love for the poor in our lives, that's a worrying sign that we may not have understood the gospel truly or taken it to heart. Such hearts, I guess if they lack a quality of mercy towards the poor, has, has such a heart received God's mercy and truly understood it? It is impossible to receive God's mercy without being changed by it in some way. So in other words, someone who shows no evidence of, of love for the poor possibly lacks true saving faith in Jesus. Again, we're going to talk about that more next week. As verse 13 says, if someone continues in that way, they will meet judgment without mercy because they have not shown mercy. And if that is you, and I'm not, again, I'm not talking about believers with very tender consciences of whom I am one, who will look at the failures in our lives and forget about the small evidence of fruit and then just think, you know, we're, we're condemned too. I'm not talking about that. But if you have no evidence of love for the poor in your life, I'd urge you to ask God's forgiveness, ASAP, and plead that he would change your heart. Finally, verse 13, 
mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy rescues us from his judgments through the saving death of Jesus. And the more that we press into that mercy and reflect on it and ask God's help to take it to heart, the more we will be amazed at it, the more we will rejoice in it, and the more that kind of mercy will naturally, willingly, freely overflow from us in the way that we treat other people. I can't make that happen in my own heart. You can't make that happen. Certainly not by guilt-tripping ourselves. But it does need to happen. And the Lord will do it in us as we are more blown away by his mercy to us. As we see that he became poor for our salvation. So can I encourage you to to pray for him to show you that in the next week? Can I encourage you maybe to, if you haven't for a while, start reading through one of the Gospels again. See how the life of Jesus exudes that mercy. Listen to worship songs that draw out that mercy, that speak of it with beautiful words and music and captivate our hearts with it all the more. Talk of it with each other after church. It's only through grasping that mercy that our hearts will be changed. Why don't we pray for that and then we can sing of that mercy. Heavenly Father, I suspect um, a good few of us in this room will feel yeah, very aware of our failures on, on this front and the way that we, we love the comfort of being surrounded by wealth and people who are like us. We, we don't want to leave our comfort zones to move towards those who are poor, to share the gospel with them. And we show favoritism towards the rich in many ways. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. Thank you that we're not all equally like that. <laughs> Thank you that there will be people in this room for whom that's less of a struggle. But Lord, for all of us, please would you keep growing us. Please captivate our hearts more powerfully, more completely with the mercy of Christ becoming poor for us so that we would no longer show favoritism to the rich and that we would honour the poor as you have honoured them. We ask in Jesus' name.